Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. And we praise you that the work of our salvation, the acts of our redemption have been finished. They are completed in Christ. We praise you for that. And as we come and we reflect upon Titus and we, we listen to the way in which you have revealed yourself, we pray that the glorious truth of the gospel, that we are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus, may that sink within us. May it be an indelible mark, an indelible grace upon our lives that we cannot remove and that goes with us all the days you have ordained for us. We pray this again in the name of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Christmas 2015 was a special time in the Nowling household. Now, it is true that insofar as Christmas is when we celebrate you know, the incarnation of Christ, Christmas is always a special time. But in 2015, it was a particular celebration within the Nowling household. It was Naomi's first Christmas. And so to the, the sleeplessness of the Christmas, well, to, to, to parenting a, a small child, we added all of the craziness of the Christmas you know, time and season. Uh, it seemed like we had a mountain of presents to wrap for her. That's probably just because we waited to the last minute to wrap them. But you know, your Christmas was filled with, with all of the, the normal busyness, and we were barely kind of getting all of the places we needed to go. But it was also a special time because I had made a promise. My wife and I had watched a baking show, and on the baking show they highlighted a, a bread called Pavitica. And if you don't know what Pavitica is, neither did I, but it's a chocolate nut roll, okay? And when you make it, you roll it out into a snake that's five foot long, and then you put it into the baking tin, and you turn it, and you, you, you keep doing that. And, and after you, it bakes, you cut it, and there are these, if you do it right, there are these five, four or five beautiful spirals on the inside. Well, we looked at it, and I said, well, I, I think I could do that. And so I tried it, and, and we ate it, and it didn't poison us. And so um, I had promised, as a special Christmas treat, to make Pavitica. But the problem is, it takes six hours to make Pavitica. There's a lot of rolling and kneading and waiting, and then mixing and rolling and waiting some more. And then once everything's assembled, it's an hour to bake in the oven. And I, and I talk about this because with all of Christmas, with an infant and work and shopping and last-minute wrapping and trying to be helpful in all of those areas, as Christmas... Eve was progressing, I knew I was in trouble because at the end of it, I had six hours devoted to baking. Now, to be fair, Sarah didn't care whether I made it or not, but for me, I had promised. I said I'd do it, and so I started. Then every time she came into the kitchen, she would offer, you know, encouragement to me, but there's kind of a fundamental truth about making bread. If you quit halfway through, it's no good right? You know, if, if you want to make apple crisp, right, you peel your apples, you slice your apples, and you say, oh, I can't be bothered. Guess what you have? Delicious apples. But if you put your flour and water and all the stuff to make bread together and then say, I, I, don't, I don't know that I want to bake it, it's disgusting. 
right? So, so Christmas 2015 was a special time. I'm grateful to say that, you know, I, I completed the bake and nobody died, everybody liked it, you know, nobody choked on a nut or anything, and life goes on. Now, I begin with this rather extended story, which, let's be honest, is kind of silly, uh, because there are some interesting similarities with some of what the Lord does in time and space. Now, I'm not saying that they're the same, that I'm just saying there are some similarities. And what I mean by that is that the Scriptures tell us that God has promised the gospel, the good news of our salvation, uh, the hope of eternal life, and He brings it to pass. Now, God is working over the course of millennia to bring it to pass. I worked over six hours. See, there's no real comparison. It's just there's some similarity here. We also understand that just as Pavitica wouldn't have worked if I'd stopped halfway through, so God's redemption of His people, the salvation we enjoy, wouldn't have worked if, say, you know, He brought His people out of exile and then said, all right, I'm done. But that He brings it to fruition, He brings it to its fullness in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. He does it at the proper time. We also need to remember, of course, that as he's bringing it to fruition in Christ, he's still working, working amidst people. He doesn't wind up the universe and just let it go, but he, he's, he's at work, and we know that as part of that, as part of his application of the blood of Christ to, to his people in all ages, there are believers in the Old Testament just as there are in the New. He continues this work today. By His Spirit, guiding us and directing us to the Lord Jesus. Now, the book of Titus as a whole, and the passages in particular, show us how God has manifested this promise of salvation in time and place, in the Lord Jesus. And as a result of that, He calls us to a faith-filled obedience as kind of the fruit of God working within us. And that is where we hope to go and stay over the course of the next several weeks. Now, as we think about Titus, the book, we recognize that along with First and Second Timothy, it, it, it's somewhat unique um, in that Paul was writing these letters to co-workers, laborers, friends, individuals. It contains a certain intimacy or tenderness that goes beyond what you would see in Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus or at Philippi. But it also addresses a particular set of issues in the church where Titus was ministering. And that is to say, amongst the people who lived in Crete. And so we see that the book of Titus is, um, is a letter written both to an individual and to a church. And insofar as it's written to an individual, we have a sense of who that person is. There are a handful of references to Titus in the New Testament. And as we look in uh, 2 Corinthians, we see several mentions of him. And they shed a particular light upon him. We know that the church at Corinth was in many ways in trouble and had been led astray. And we know that among its problems was a rejection of Paul's apostolic authority. 
people weren't certain anymore that the Lord was speaking through Paul to them. And Timoth- or, sorry, and Titus was the man that, that Paul sent to Corinth to help them. And I think we can rightly infer that Paul's hope was that that gospel which he had preached to them would be reinforced in Titus's corrections and instructions. And we actually have indication in 2 Corinthians that that is true, that that's what happened. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 6 and 7 say, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. That's the Corinthian people. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Why do I begin this way looking at Titus? Because Titus was probably left in Crete for the same or similar reasons as he was sent to the people in Corinth. As they were struggling and as they were Uh, somewhat wayward in their understanding of the gospel and of who Paul was, Titus was there to give them proper instruction. And Lord willing, as we go through the book, we'll see that some of the difficulties he faced were factiousness or fighting and division and, and a certain attention to Jewish myths. And we'll see that Paul's solution for Titus, for the people, was godly leadership. As We begin this letter of Titus, we see that it is focused primarily on God's promise. And it's, again, the promise of the gospel, which was promised in long ages past, but is made real or manifest at the proper time. And we see that this promise in in its manifestation is based in Paul's words on one actually very small but essential statement. It says, the God who cannot lie. Right there. It's in uh, verse 2 as it says, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie. And that's kind of an odd phrase I'll recognize. But it's crucial to this passage and indeed the letter. As we think about it, we recognize that Paul is drawing on Old Testament imagery uh, or words. We see in Numbers 23, 19, a familiar verse, it says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? In short, when God says something, he will bring it to pass. This is made all the more amazing when we recognize that this was spoken not by a prophet of Israel, but this is spoken by the Lord through an enemy of God's people who had been hired to cause Israel trouble. But the Lord says, no, we're not going to do that. This is my people. I've spoken and I will not change. We also recognize, as we think about creation, uh, that it's important that God tell the truth because of the nature of creation. I mean, think about what sort of sin a lie is. It's a lie of our words. It's a lie of our our mouths, our speech. When we lie in a relationship, the relationship falls to pieces, or at least partially falls to pieces, and it has to be built back up. And that certainly would be true if the Lord were to lie to us, but there's something that goes far beyond. The Scriptures tell us that the Lord spoke creation into existence. 
What would that mean if the Lord were proved to be a liar? If his speech were unreliable? If that were so, I would suggest that, that we would say that creation itself would fall apart. Because it's held together by his word. And if that's not true, it would crumble. We see for, for Israel, for God's people, uh, that there's even stronger language. Malachi 3.6 kind of makes the same point, but, but says it a little differently. He says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. You're not destroyed. And we remember there the situation that the Lord has said you know, that He would be Israel's God and that Israel would be His people and that He's redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. He's delivered them on the battlefield countless times. He's, he's even brought them back from exile. And He's calling them to, to follow Him, to be His people. And they're not. They're wandering from the Lord and they've profaned the worship of God. Were it not, and, and so Malachi 3.6 is telling us that were it not for God's word and His promise that He would be their God and they would be His people, and the fact that He does not change in His word, if it were not for that, Israel would have been destroyed, wiped out of existence. The fact that God does not lie is also important to us because it we need to you know, consider the two ideas that that is holding together. The first is that God has promised the hope of eternal life. It's the gospel or the, the good news of our salvation. It's the news that we don't have to carry the burden of our sins. And the other part of that phrase, God who does not lie, is that God has carried out that plan. He has revealed that salvation in the proper time. And as we sit and as we wrestle with this, as we wrestle with this, what might seem like a detail of the text, we say, who cares? We, I mean, we, we know, okay, it's important that God doesn't lie, but why, why is it so important? You know, some might even be tempted to say, well, don't tell us that. Just tell us what we're supposed to do. Tell us how I'm supposed to live. The call of the church in America in our day is a, is a call for uh, what, what's sometimes called incarnational living. And what it means, you know, incarnation means to, to put into flesh. And, and so incarnational living is this idea that we take the love of God and, and we put it into flesh, that is to say, into our actions, into our words, into the things we say, think, and do. And it doesn't mean, you know, I'm not trying to say that we should not say love one another or not follow the commands of the Scriptures, but we need to recognize that the Lord has promised salvation in Christ. So what I'm saying here is that we have two options. Either the gospel is true, that's the message of our salvation, that's the message of our redemption by the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which He has accomplished and it's done, or we have to earn our own salvation. So to the church that is, is in the United States now, which is calling for a kind of an incarnational living. Just, just live out the love of Christ wherever you go. That's what you have to do to be a Christian. 
It's ignoring the fact that our redemption is complete in Christ. It's ignoring the fact that salvation comes not by what you do, not by the righteousness that you have in and of your own actions, because you don't have any. The Scriptures make that quite clear. Rather, it is present, redemption is present because of the work of the Lord Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. When Jesus says, it is finished, it is finished. All of this, that the Lord Jesus Christ has fully accomplished all that is in the gospel, all of that is tied to the reality that God does not lie. He tells the truth. He has promised it and He has brought it about. Now, as we think about that, we we say, you know, the text says that that this promise was in long ages back, or long ages ago, or or, um, as Naomi used to say, a way long time, a way long back time ago. Uh, What does that mean? Uh, Well, we think about our Old Testament passages. We think about Genesis 3.15. We remember that, that what has happened is that man has just sinned. Man has just disobeyed from the Lord. And, and because of their sin, they're cut off from the Lord. And the Lord is pronouncing judgment upon man. And, I mean, this very well could be it. And in the midst of God's judgment upon the serpent, He gives this promise. And it's 3.15, and I'll read it again. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, we recognize that this is using physical language of of a foot crushing the head of a serpent, but we understand that that this this language is is communicating the, the, the restoration and more of all that was lost in the fall, that sin will be forgiven, that the curse that the Lord is pronouncing will be taken away. And we recognize that insofar as the Lord is promising it, He's going to bring it about. And we know that this is a promise of of that. And we know that, that Adam and his wife, Adam and Eve, understood it to be. And the reason we know that, actually, is because Adam then named Eve. You know, sometimes we, we forget that Eve in the garden didn't have a name. In the text, if we're, if we're careful, we, we see that she's referred to as Adam's wife or the woman, but she's not called Eve. When is she called Eve? It's after the fall, after this promise. See, from her, there was promised one that's going to destroy the serpent, and it's after that that Adam names her Eve. It's, in, uh, it's five verses later. He doesn't call her, and, and it's crucial to understand what Eve means, mother of the living. He doesn't call her mother of the damned or the dying or, or the, the destitute. He calls her mother of the living. How can he do that? Because the Lord has promised that life will go on through the fruit of her womb and that Satan will be destroyed. Eve, for her part, believes the same thing. How do we know? It's easily seen with the birth of Cain. When he's born, her, her response is to say, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. You, you can't help but think she must have thought, 
this is going to be the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. Now, only a casual reading of the Bible will show us that Cain's life showed he was not the one who was going to crush the head of the serpent. But what's important is that Eve understood the promise was real, that God does not lie, and that she was eagerly looking forward for its redemption, or for, for its fulfillment. Lamech, the father of Noah, named Noah for the same reason. He says that he named him Noah because perhaps this is going to be the child to take away the curse, to give us rest. Again, Noah didn't, but we see that God's people throughout the ages, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have within the Scripture, in each generation, examples of how God's people looked for the fulfillment of God's promise. Rooted in the understanding that God will not lie. He cannot lie. We then see, by the time of Jeremiah, that... that under, again, this is under the inspiration of the Spirit, throughout the generations as God's people have wrestled with this promise and what it means that it would be fulfilled, quite a bit more. We read the verses just a minute ago, but I'll, I'll reread them now. So this is Jeremiah 32, 37 to 41. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands to which I've driven them, in my anger, in my wrath, and in great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place, and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always, for their own good, and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts, so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do good, and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. The promise of, of Jeremiah here, the promise of the Lord through Jeremiah, I should say, um, finds its expression in the redemption of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit to, to change our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. So that, that by the power of the Spirit, we're able to follow the Lord. That, that we can respond in faithful obedience. Not as a, the basis for our righteousness, but a, but a fruit of the righteousness that comes from Christ. We see, as the Scriptures progress, this ongoing revelation of the coming Messiah. And we see the way that Paul describes it here in verse 3. Again, this is speaking of, of what God has done. He says, But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. At the proper time, the word was manifested. I think as we, we think about that, we can't help but think about John 1, 1, where the Lord Jesus is described as God's Word, the Word who was with the Lord, and the, the Word who was, was the Lord, and, right? I think that's what Paul is, that sort of idea is what Paul is drawing us to as he's, he's writing this, and he's talking about in time and space, all of the redemption of God, which is found in Christ was made manifest. 
We now live in, in the world between his first coming and second coming. And so we see some of its fulfillment in his first, and you know, we, we, we still see continued sin around, and we might be tempted to think, well, what's going on? But we have, again, the promised word that God will return, that the Lord Jesus will return. And again, God cannot lie. And so we have faith knowing that he will bring about all that he has promised. So then what do we do as a result of this? I mean, it is true that the Lord calls us to lives of faithful obedience as a result of Christ's redemption of us. But we need to again remember that it is not by our deeds that we are redeemed. It's not by our deeds that we are deemed righteous. And so as we recognize that Christ Jesus has fully paid for our sins, we say yes and amen. Thank you, Lord. Now, as we draw our time this morning to a close, um, I want to highlight Paul and his role in all of this. We see in, in verse 3 that Paul speaks of this word, but he also speaks of the fact that he was made a minister of that word by the command of God the Savior. In short, Paul is acknowledging that he is called as an apostle, and he's tying his words of calling, that he's called as an apostle, to the fact that he's called by the same person who saves people, that is to say, the Lord. He's not called by man, he's called by God. Notice also in verse 1 that when he says that he's an apostle, he's, it says that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those who are chosen of God. And the knowledge of truth. Now as we think about an apostle, uh, in a basic sense, it's just someone who's sent. Uh, I could you know, send somebody to the grocery store and they become my apostle. Uh, spreading the news of cereal and milk for all to hear. But we understand that that's not likely what Paul has here, right, in, in mind. He's, he's referring, of course, to his trip to Damascus when the Lord Jesus appears to him in a blinding light. His companions don't really know what's going on. He falls down and he hears the voice that says, Saul, Saul, because before he was Paul, he was Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that time forward, he lived for the Lord. He lived in obedience of the, uh, to, to the Lord Jesus who had redeemed him and who had then sent him out. And we see here that Paul is entrusted with the proclamation of the word. That is to say, preaching, teaching, instruction. This is part of what, what we read in Romans 10. right? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But we, we understand it in, earlier in that passage, how will people believe if they don't hear? How will people hear if no one speech, you know, preaches? How, how will people preach if nobody's sent we would add how are people sent if they're not called you see god is sovereign over all and he could by his sovereign power write with clouds in the skies you know each night the message of the gospel so that anybody could just look up and read it uh, he, he could send lightning bolts so that every time a lightning bolt hits somebody they come to know the gospel he could drop golden tablets from the heavens to be found in the woods and understood and interpreted by a select few. 
He doesn't do any of those things. The Lord has ordained the, the, the ordinary means of communication, preaching, teaching, the spoken word, the gospel going from person to person as the way in which the Spirit makes the word of the Lord come alive to us, become intelligible to us. So we're going through this book of Titus, and we have, I prayerfully have many reasons to do so. Titus helps us understand how the church body is to, to work together, to, to walk in obedience to the Lord. But we also see the, the way in which leadership plays a role within the life of the church. So as we come to a close today, I, I mention this particular point of Titus for two reasons. The first is that we are praying for and waiting on a new senior pastor. Second, as I announced earlier, spring is the time when spiritual counsel and consistory begin the process to consider who is qualified and who might be chosen, not by man, but by the Lord, called by the Lord, to serve as an officer, that is to say an elder or deacon of the church. So what should we do? Well, we need to pray. We need to pray uh, that like Paul, men would be called by God and entrusted with the proclaiming of the gospel, with shepherding God's people, with meeting the physical needs of the flock, with, with doing all the things that make a healthy church function. We need to pray for such men. Uh, we, we need to remember that Paul's authority didn't come from man but came from God, and so we're praying that God would in the same way, raise up men to serve his people. In this way, we think of Jesus as he's looking at Jerusalem and he says, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. So we need to pray. Pray that God's Spirit would be at work amongst us, uh, leading us as a congregation to a new senior pastor, leading the new senior pastor to us, for men to serve as elders and deacons, for, for men who, who, who understand the time with knowledge of what God's people should do and say and think, that they would be called by God to serve. As we await for such people, we remember that the God who has promised to redeem us is the same God who promises never to leave us, never to forsake us, and to see us through. And in that truth, may we rest and have confidence in our sovereign God. Amen.